Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Hi there, welcome Donald, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure having you on. I really appreciate you giving up your time this wet afternoon. No worries. Well, it's wet where you are. It's, it's uh, blissfully sunny down here in Surrey, so that's all fine. Yeah, so it's all There's good. no need to gloat, Donald. You don't have to gloat about the weather down there, just because it's <laughs> well, a bit wet up here in the north. Well, you've got the Eurovision, you know, and you've got, <laughs> you know, the finest football teams in the world, you know. And, that's true. Uh, you know, you've plenty to, to shout about. That's true. I'll take that over the weather any day. Sure. So let's have a chat about why we're here. So we're going to talk about Donald McIntyre's Killer Evidence, the new show on CBS Reality, which premiered on May the 1st. Before we get there, Donald, let's talk a little bit about your career and your history. I've got you down here as an investigative investigative journalist is that a fair assessment of what you do is that how you describe yourself well i think it's kind of it's a label people use i mean to be honest all journalism and and podcasts it's investigative it's based entirely on curiosity i think the label investigative is tends to be given to those who are one in current affairs and two who tend to be probably of a certain age but also who have maybe go that extra mile or a little more dogged or concentrate on uh issues and and long-standing interests so it it wouldn't necessarily be applied investigative to a um a weekly newspaper reporter who's got to you know serve up their quota of stories so it, it tends to be kind of long long-term stories investigations so uh yeah it's a broad term it's an incomplete and probably vaguely inaccurate term but for for better or worse it's not a bad one what's your style as far as journalism is concerned because based on my research you like to sort of get yourself stuck in at the deep end for example we'll come on to the the football gang that you infiltrated at one point as well but it seems like you're a fan of getting inside the story rather than reporting from the outside well i think um to be honest it's it's perhaps all of those i think each story demands something very very different i think um i do like getting my hands dirty i do like meeting people the essence of kind of journalism is one curiosity and i think for me it's meeting people and it's going that extra mile and in terms of 
traditional documentaries slash investigations, you know, my engagement with people in the field, you know, if it was so, if it was uh, a matter of maybe an issue about a social matter. So I've done lots of traditional documentaries and I've done some plenty of undercover and plenty of hard edge stuff, but at its heart is kind of people and basic research. So it is no really magic formula and I don't uh, depending on each project I I kind of approach it in a different way if you're doing a traditional investigation of panorama or dispatches you know it's basic standard research you do more dogged research you talk to more people yeah and you keep carving out a niche area of a story sometimes though traditional journalistic methods can't crack a story and you have to go undercover and the first steps of that investigation are very basic you know it's research driven uh, no more than your research then you target a group and you see if you can infiltrate them and then you work in a wardrobe and a legend built around that but i've spent a lot of time i've worked in traditional reporting in war zones i've done my first bit of filming television i worked for transworld sport uh, the very first bit of television i ever did i was uh, i was a, a star of uh, a snickers advert in ireland many 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 moons ago and when snickers transferred and came from marathon bar you won't remember this you're too young transferred into snickers <laughs> so i uh, so i was the face of that but uh, in essence my first television work was in investigations in sport in fact the first one was for transworld sport i was I'm, i am and remain a sports nut and uh, i did reporting for transworld sport as a freelancer in the former yugoslavia during the war in 92 93 and so even while i was working for a um ostensibly kind of benign international uh, and i think renowned and well-known sports program i found a way of moving it into an arena and ended up doing reportage from the war zones from split from yugoslavia and re- reporting on the um the croatian basketball team and other stories in and around there for the transworld program so i part of the action thing i'm attracted of to going that extra mile and sometimes you know the the action is attracted towards me but usually it's it's not i'd like to think it's not entirely driven by ego or some adrenaline junkie but uh, i think it's driven mostly by the story is there a fear that you could become so involved in something where it would danger your life so for example Adrenaline junkies, I know you mentioned that you don't necessarily class yourself as one, but let's say you jump out of a plane that's however many feet high and you get a buzz off that. Next time you go, if you jump from the same height, you won't get the same buzz, so you jump higher and higher and higher. Is there a concern that if you were to get involved in something to get that buzz, it could potentially be life-threatening? Well, I think a lot of the journalism I've done have been life-threatening. I have jumped out of planes many times before. And in fact, I did it for a television program. I jumped off a helicopter onto the Arctic ice cap and I was praying uh, <laughs> that, the, that the the weather would close in and not let me... Uh, uh, and not, not let, let me parachute. As it happens, the weather ended up being perfect and I had to do five parachutes. That was an assisted parachute jump. And I know I digress, but I also did a single parachute. And, you know, it's scary. It didn't attract me to go back. I'm very happy to do something once and then decide, do I want more of this or not? No, I think listen, I've been around uh, the block and uh, um, uh, several times over and around the globe several times over. And I've been asked this question hundreds and thousands of times. And uh, there is always listen there's always a kind of movie adage that the undercover maverick reporter 
is kind of addicted and loves this adrenaline stuff. And that that wasn't me. Don't get me wrong. I, I approach fear in a very different way to lots of other people. And I'll come, I'll give you an example of that. But I don't, um, I'm not driven. That isn't my goal to get the next rush. But you do meet those adrenaline junkies. And I I have done some extreme sports and are notionally extreme. And I, I, and there's a difference between people who are interested in extreme sports and, and do, do things once or twice and those who end up doing base jumping. So on the scale of adrenaline junkies, I assure you, I'd be on the very bottom of the scale. No, I'm goal orientated. I want to get to the story. I want to get to the crux of the story and I want to publish the story. Uh, and so it's goal orientated. And then I move on to the next one. In terms of the adrenaline and fear factor, I did do the uh, the jump, which <laughs> actually the ski jumping show in Channel 4. And I loved it because I hadn't really skied before. And I do love the idea of putting myself in positions I hadn't been before and testing myself. Yes, there's a bit of a, a kind of dance with fear there. But actually, I think um, one of the instructors said that I... Uh, I was like, I treated my body as a crash test dummy and had uh, and seemingly was a fearless attitude to my own welfare and safety. And I think actually, you know, if you carry fear about you in dangerous situations, that in itself is a very dangerous thing to do. So it's, so if I if you're in a dangerous situation, either in a war zone or you're doing a, a difficult activity, skiing, canoeing, whatever, you really want to be as calm about you as, you as you can be. Inevitably, there are plenty of times when I've been undercover, when I have been scared, I've been in war zones and shot at and kidnapped and tracked by Burmese soldiers in the Golden Triangle. So, I, you know, these events are not unusual to me. And uh, when you first get your first death threat, which uh, then it's a terrifying thing, you know, forget if you're in the field, the fear goes and the issue goes when you leave the field. Uh, with some of the journalism, people have long memories and you get death threats and safe houses. But uh, it's the first death threat that really rocks you because you're just not used to it, you know. And uh, so I remember my first death threat when I went undercover in Nottingham uh, in a drug gang in Nottingham. I first got a job as a bouncer, lived there undercover for a year, pretty much infiltrated from top to bottom, a whole layer of uh, interesting, fascinating social layer of society, drug dealers, bodybuilders, boxers, and bouncers. And um, I won the confidence of a couple of key people in that area and broadcast a show for World in Action. I got a death threat after that. £50,000 price on my head. And that was 1996, 1997. But after you get your first one, they become, they kind of become to a penny. I am reminded that um, these kind of death threats, which some journalists get and lots of people, some people get, they're from the police officially. So they're unofficial death threats. They're phoned in and they, they come. And then there are some death threats called Osman warnings when the police knock on your door and they say, there's an issue here. We have credible evidence and intelligence from an unnamed person in an unnamed city that suggests your life is under credible risk. And you say, okay, can you tell me anything about it? No. Okay. Well, can you give me any advice other than no? Uh, and they say, can we give you, can you give me any protection? And they say no. And then they say, bye-bye. And that's it. And that is not an irregular or unusual for the police to do that. I don't know how many of the issue, you know, certainly several hundred 
a year in London. And indeed, in London, a city I know, I wouldn't imagine the figures are proportionally any different any, in any other city across the, the land. You'd be surprised the amount of people under the age of 18 who get Osman warnings. So uh, I live in a in arena and that's far. I don't get that now. But in the past, uh, I have had that. And uh, so death threats, war zones, some extreme sports. It might look like an adrenaline junkie, but that's actually not the way I face the world, you know. And I'm aware that the way I face the world is my way. And what I would suggest is that people always try because they want to make sense of me or other people in their in your context. And your context would be, oh, I've seen Heat, I've seen this movie, I've seen this movie. And you're trying to center a character around some adrenaline junkie. And, you know, I think all of us are unique and deal with fear and jeopardy and threat and risk in a different way. And however I deal with it, it's my own way and I'm happy with it. But I don't think, and this is a very long answer, I'm necessarily an adrenaline junkie. You mentioned that you got kidnapped. Can you tell mm. me that story? Yeah, I was over in uh, the DRC, the Congo. I was doing a program with the BBC Wildlife Department on the uh, the trade in rare uh, mountain gorillas, and the in that in that part of the Congo, going on to Uganda and Rwanda, there is the Kasebe National Park. I'm sure I've got that wrong. And it's the 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 mountain gorillas, of which there are only about a thousand left on the planet. And these were the same troop of gorillas who, um, in 1977, Attenborough, David Attenborough, did his famous documentary yeah. with and and got up close and personal to. Although they're, you know, at the at the time that was a, a fantastic thing. Nowadays. They wouldn't necessarily recommend that because about they're very careful these days about the cross-contamination of diseases and human and transfer of the zootonic diseases and all of that stuff. But, I, but he basically put that tribe along with um, Diane Fossey on, on um, the world's map. And uh, some of those gorillas have been killed, poached. Some of them have been uh, uh, traded and kidnapped. And we were on the trail of that. And while we were doing that, we crossed into the Congo. I did with a team of wildlife officers. And we were kidnapped by a militia of um, from uh, in the DRC and um, held captive at gunpoint, taken aside. And we tried to make some phone calls I phoned my producer who's in a hotel in Kigali, in, in Rwanda, and he figured, oh, you'll be all right, Donald, you'll talk and walk your way out of it. The confidence we had was kidnapping was pretty familiar there, you know, in the sense that it was always a deal to be done between militias. And so our wildlife officers got a phone managed to phone somebody very high up in Rwanda who phoned up a, a connected militia in uh, the Congo. And eventually after a day, we got released. But uh, having spent lots of times in war zones from Beirut to the former Yugoslavia, as I say, out in parts of the Golden Triangle being shot at, you know, it's quite interesting is that when you're reading about conditions from afar, you don't necessarily realize that in most war zones, and some parts of the Ukraine, obviously very different, but lots of people continue to live their normal lives. So like in, uh, I'm reminded, like in Beirut during the wars in the early 90, you know, people still went to school, they still shopped, the shop markets were there and there were still kidnappings and bombings and shootings and, and mortar attacks going on every now and then. And, but still people, so five or six people might die in a city of a million or 800,000. And, and that's probably the number that might die necessarily in a car crash. So there, there is always in a war zone, there's a 
people going about their real lives. And that's a really bizarre thing. And you're, and so when you're, that's the surprise when you're a reporter in these places you're saying, Oh God, there's a lot of normal activity going on in between. Now, obviously there are crunch points. And I think this modern day warfare is slightly different, but back in Beirut and the former Yugoslavia, a great deal of kind of um, normal activity going on. And for the reporter on location, the impact upon you uh, if one of your colleagues have been killed, maimed or injured or a local colleague or someone close to you, then obviously it hits you very hard. There is a sense when you're first there as a young reporter, it feels like a video game. I don't play video games, but I'd imagine that's what it feels like. It just it, there's unreal quality to it. We flew into Sarajevo once and um, with a um, crew from Los Angeles, I think KCBS, and they did a K-San dive, which is a dive from about a couple of thousand feet, but nearly a straight dive down into Sarajevo airport to avoid enemy fire or fire from the Serbs. And I remember stepping out and there was some fire around and the, the I was producing a little item or helping to produce an item. So the Los Angeles reporter just came in and did her piece to camera on the airport for literally 10 minutes and then flew out. But but um, it just felt surreal. So a lot of it is surreal. So I've been very lucky when I've been in those war zones, nobody close to me, not my crew, not a connected uh, or, or, or three or four circles away from me. They haven't really, they've never been damaged, hit, hurt. So I still have this kind of, uh, I've been very fortunate in that respect. So, but a lot of the time in a war zone, it just feels very surreal and, and uh, it has an ethereal quality to it. Of course, you know, if somebody close to you is hurt or somebody you know, a family who you've got to know on the ground is hurt, then it, it obviously has a much bigger impact. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Before we come on to the um, the new show, I want to briefly touch upon the the football hooliganism. I watched uh, Football Factory last night as a bit of research, <laughs> which is about um, members yeah, of a yeah. violent Chelsea hooligan firm. You infiltrated uh, the Chelsea headhunters at one point. I just want to know, how realistic is Football Factory? Is that how the firms are run, or is that ridiculously out of comprehension? Oh, I think um, I mean the, I think the football factory was was fed and given information from you know working ex hooligans who kind of briefed them, so it's not out of tune at all. And I think a lot of the football hooligan drama films have been reasonably accurate, excepting for some Hollywood fantasy and all that. But by and large, I mean the reality about the football hooligan gangs is that it's so much about, and I think this does come ac- across. It is about tribal. It's about belonging. I was talking to a school, a bunch of 16, 17, 18 year olds the other day, and I. I was asking him, why do you think people join, you know, become members of football hooligan firms? And one kid said, yeah, belonging. And it is a tribal quality to that. And the football is the glue which keeps them together. Uh, but there is a visceral quality in terms of masculinity, hyper-masculinity, and maybe even a little bit of class where they, in our sanitized world, and more so now than it was in the 70s, is that, you know, to have a ruck on a Saturday, people could play rugby and beat the hell out of each other. But, you know, and but a lot of hooligans went to the football for the bonding experience of having a physical raw fight against the opposition. And they would organize it. 
One of the really interesting things, which hasn't been much research, but a friend of mine, former colleague of mine at Birmingham City University, Professor James Treadwell, I went undercover in the Chelsea Headhunters and uh, he went as a researcher. He traveled with, I think, the Sheffield Owls. I uh, could be wrong there. Apologies if I am. But he traveled uh, open and was an academic researcher. So he was an ethnographic researcher. So he was just studying uh, on a social terms how they worked, how they bonded together. And he found much the same things. But one really interesting thing was that during a phase in the kind of mid 90s, during the middle of the ecstasy era, the violence and football hooliganism seemed to deplete and people wondered why. But upon reflection, we had a seminar in Birmingham City a couple of years ago on this. And it transpired that the football hooligan firms who on their Saturdays would arrange their rucks and, and all of this stuff, they'd, you know, uh, raw antipathy, visceral like anger and aggression towards each other. They were expert at organizing fights away from the eyes of the police, which also meant that the same skill set meant that they were also expert at organizing where house parties and ecstasy parties away from the eyes of the police and suddenly they began to work together with different firms and coalesce and make money together and get high you know and make lots of money and so so for an area for a time the reason why there was a diminution of violence among football hooligans was because of the um involvement uh, of uh, several hooligan firms cooperating to run ecstasy parties and make money out of it, which I thought was a really interesting insight into. Actually, outside of football, these guys have lots in common. And outside of football, it's also important, you know, is that, right, some of the guys I met, they, you know, in one level, they're incredibly xenophobic, racist, hateful, the worst people you can imagine. And they're boasting about doing Nazi salutes over in Auschwitz, urinating on graves there. Every imagine, you know, unbelievable. Right. These same guys are also buying Indian food and, you know, and they're eating the Chinese. And, you know, so, I mean, it's kind of very mixed, messed up political world they live in. However, away from that very naive and idiotic and racist and terrible politics, individually, I've seen them being loyal to their friends. That's a lovely quality. I've seen them when one of their friends has been ill and dying of cancer, organize and spend a great deal of time organizing, you know, a night out to raise money for their funds, for the for the family and extended and, and shorty to be bereaved. So, you know, none of these football hooligans are all good or bad. It's very complex. So when you go undercover, depending on the project, you're displaying some of that world and sometimes just displaying a bit of that world and also their crimes so uh yeah it's it's a, it's a fascinating world but as i say you know i've looked at it from both as a um as a football supporter i've looked at it as an academic and i've looked at it as an undercover reporter myself and uh i still have a, a chelsea tattoo i got from the from my time undercover yeah interesting times that is dedicated, getting a tattoo. <laughs> so let's talk then about killer evidence. This is the new CBS reality show that premiered on May the 1st. And this is 10 uh, UK and US-based cases where forensics basically brought the murderers to justice. The one I've watched, which I think was episode one, was the Camden Ripper, Anthony Hardy. I have covered his case on the show before. How has this show come about and how did you pick the cases that were covered on it? Well, you'll know. I don't know whether you run a one uh, uh, horse band. One man show. One man show here. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, 
mo- most products, you know, I mean, this, you know, are result in television and media. It's a mediated experience. You talk to your team, they talk to you, they see what's achievable. Uh, you know, uh, the 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 key calling card for this is, of course, you know, that where DNA has uh, been the, you know, primary driver in getting a conviction across the line. And I think that they were very keen to celebrate you know, the fine work of, of these kind of um, the, the first scientific responders on the ground. So the investigators can come in, but it's the responders, the 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 uh, the, the first evidence gatherers and how uh, that work, and particularly the primary days, you know, can be so important in finally getting conviction, a conviction in three months or four months, in some cases, 10 years later. So I was asked to kind of celebrate this kind of work. And so I talked with the production team, a very eminent production team called Emporium, and we talked with CBS execs and we kind of, um, coalesced around what stories worked, um, what stories were, were best for us to give a wide range of of uh, American and UK stories at the same time as to where we could showcase uh, the best of the forensic work. So, um, and we, we, I think we have an interesting, I think we do have an interesting mix, you know, the Anthony Hardy case. I mean, what did you think of that? I mean, you followed it. I mean, it's a fascinating case. It is a fascinating one. I think the bit I was fascinated with was the um, the disgraced pathologist in there, Dr. Freddie Patel, and yeah. the, the incorrect cause of death for Sally White, which then resulted in Anthony Hardy not going to prison. He went to psychiatric units, then got released and killed the two more women. So that part of it really spoke. To yeah, me. it's not unusual. I mean, I, the, 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 it's not unusual uh, that the pathology um, evidence is contested. I mean, some of it's subjective, some of it is not. I mean, I'm reminded that in relation to, and this is, I've just finished a book uh, called A Million Ways to Stay in the Run with um, Kenny Noy and about the death of and murder of Stephen Cameron. And what was interesting is that even in 1996, when he died, a pathologist kind of looked at Steve first on Stephen Cameron's body on literally on, within hours of his death uh, in on the Swanee roundabout. And he, uh, that pathologist's evidence was challenged very soon afterwards by state pathologists who were also brought in in the absence of a defendant then then the state uh, prosec- uh, investigating police officer will always bring in an independent pathologist so straight out of the uh, of the outset you know the independent pathologist challenged the evidence of the state pathologist i think is dr heath and dr heath had said and the evidence there is about uh, the force and the the type of interaction and as evidenced by by the uh, uh, the wounds on, on on the corpse and on the torso and what was interesting is that by the time that came to trial dr heath was still kind of respected but within a couple of years afterwards he became heavily discredited lots of convictions were overturned and then i found 20 20 years later he was still and he must be like in his late 70s and you can check it out he still was giving uh, working on autopsies, though not for the Metropolitan Police and not for the CPS, but you know on private autopsies for homes and and things like this. And he was still, you know, being in, being challenged for the cause of death. And 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 this guy was still operating, and yet he was wholly and utterly discredited. And you just wonder how, in God's name, can these so-called experts be continuing to allow to operate? But you know, it happens. You know, it happens. Yeah, it's a shame, but what I'm going to advise everyone to do who is listening is to check out Donald McIntyre. Am I saying your name right there? I keep saying Donald. It's Donald. Donald. You can say Donald. Donald. I don't care. You know, it's fine. <laughs> I once Don- said, uh, yeah. yeah. No, so you can check. You can Donald or Donald. Yeah. 
We'll go with Donald then. Donald McIntyre's killer evidence. It started on May 1st on CBS Reality, 10 episodes, UK and UK cases where forensic evidence brought the murderers to justice. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Donald, and good luck with the show and with your future endeavours, and hopefully at some point we will meet again. No worries. Are you going to CrimeCon as it happens? I know this I'm know. going to CrimeCon. Are you there? Yeah, I'll be there, so I'll see you there. No I'll worries. see you there. We'll have a pint. Pleasure. Thanks for that. You Thank take you. Care. Cheers. Bye-bye.